Welcome to the 32nd episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We are your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, I guess Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, no doubt. If you uh, are not a Christian and anything else, uh, happy holidays. Um, Yes. You know, we hope uh, everybody has a great time. Exactly. We've got a pretty good episode, but I'm going to talk about Craig Moore. Uh, Craig uh, gave us a little comment on the KV2 episode. He says, eh, not bad for your, you know, Americanized frosted <laughs> frosted flakes, you know, uh, history. Uh, but he was very, very cool, and he's friends with Francis Pullman. Now, I want, I want all our listeners, we're at, well, almost 10,000 now followers. You guys, if you get a chance, you need to get this book called Fallen Giants. Uh, this Francis Pullman is author, and he's extremely cool. And... <laughs> He has researched the Soviet T-34 tank, and he knows what happened to, like, all of them. (laughs) Wow. This guy just has amazing stuff. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting that book and reading it myself. Well, we're going to be grabbing a hold of Craig soon, and when we figure out this Skype recording, uh, we are not the most technical people in the world. Yes. If Uh, anybody's got any good ideas on... How to record? How to record on Skype? On Skype or Discord or anything like that. Uh, give us give a us mes- a message on on our Anywhere. email address or Facebook. We're, anything uh, we'll even take it on YouTube. Yes, <laughs> I've been looking into it and trying to get some good ideas. But but if anybody's got any personal firsthand experience with it and would like to help out, yeah, please do. Yep. But you know, people like Craig. And Ed Webster and yes. some of the other people, or Rob. I know. Uh, Rob Kogan. I know. Down there at Fort Benning. It'd be awesome just yeah. being able to get on Discord or Skype, record that, and let you guys listen in. Yeah. That, that would be neat. And every time I ask these guys questions, they're like, no. No, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not how you say it. I know. I know. We had a little complaint, too. Uh, I think you handled that. On, yeah. on the KV2 episode. Yeah. Yeah. Alex Zarister on our KV2 episode um, commented on Facebook that, uh, no offense, guys, but your podcast only reinforces very old myths about the KV2. And he gave us a link to it, and I looked at it, and I'll, I'll sort of agree with him. Uh, I, I actually went to his research, and I was like, mm, you know what? There's really conflicting reports about that. There is some stuff that was right on, you know, yeah, about it. Sure, but you know, Alex, we have always said, yes, we did our job. Yeah. That you got yeah. up, you researched exactly. it, you found it, yes, and, and we we know yeah. that we're kind of sugar frosted yeah, flakes yeah. Of, of the history world. But if we can get people interested, exactly, and some of our yeah. young viewers, like uh, oh, I know uh, Alex from last yeah. episode, and, and uh, thank you, Alex, for putting this uh, link, link to, yeah, yeah, to your information, and I mean that'll get other people out there, you know, uh, doing the research too. And, and if you're really confused, um, 
about what to do or what to research, Tank Encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, wow. When Craig Moore said- of information uh, on tanks. If it wasn't for Craig Moore, you saying, here's the link. I know. Uh, Tank Encyclopedia, people, it is really, really good. Yeah. And uh, we, we also need to put up somewhere, if maybe on, not on our website, uh, a list of some of these books and ideas, you know, history books on tanks and stuff that we get along the way. Yeah. I, I might do that. And uh, the only reason I'm really giving, you know, the Fallen Giants, you know, Francis Pullman, I want an autograph copy. Oh, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Actually, you guys really need to read the book. Oh, you know, I know. I'm, I'm just kidding around. But if you if you have questions about the T-34, this is your reference guide. Yeah. This is the guy who knows his stuff. Um, that kind of brings us to our first point. And this is kind of a silly tank, but I want to talk about it. Uh, we were talking about how the KV-2, you know, was bouncing rounds from little tank destroyers. And I was like, well, you know what? Let's talk about this. Uh, talk about the very first, I guess, tank destroyer that the Germans had. What was that? The Panzerjäger One. Nice. Even before the Second World War, the famous German tank commander, Heinz Guderian, who we've talked about before, yep. had predicted the need for highly mobile self-propelled anti-tank vehicles, which was later known to the Germans as Panzerjäger or the Jägerpanzer. Wow. All right. Give us some more information on this. The Panzerjäger One, which in English translates to the Tank Hunter One, was the first of the German tank destroyers to see service in the Second World War. It mounted a Czech Skoda 4.7 centimeter or 1.9 inch pack anti-tank gun on a converted Panzer One Ossif B chassis. Which was a little bitty tank. Little bitty tank. It was a little bitty tank. It was actually intended to counter heavy French tanks like the Char B1 that were beyond the capabilities of the 3.7 millimeter Pack 36 anti-tank gun. And it served to extend the life of the obsolete Panzer One tank chassis. So, Heinz Guderian, he, he, I mean... You can say what you want, but the yeah. man had very innovative with what he was doing yeah, at the he time. Had the ability to foresee yes. that they were gonna need these tank destroyers. And you know, I hate to say it, the Germans were like, Hey, we have these, they run, but these guns are, you know, junk. Yeah. So let's put a bigger gun on it, make it, you know, yeah. more mobile. Let's use the chassis we've got and and kind of go from there. Nice. Give us more information. 202 Panzer I's were converted to the Panzerjäger I in 1940 and 1941. They were employed in the Battle of France, in the North Africa Campaign, and also on the Eastern Front. So they saw, you know, combat. Quite a bit. And, and yeah. all of it. Okay. So they called it a tank hunter, but it really was a tank destroyer. Tank destroyer. And this was their very first. Tell us about its design and production. The Panzer I turret was removed and a fixed gun shield added to protect the armament and crew. The anti-tank gun was mounted on a pedestal in the fighting compartment with the wheels, axle, and trails removed. It retained its original gun shield. It normally carried 74 anti-tank and 10 HE or high explosive shells. Alcott and contractors built 202 vehicles, and the first series of 132 by Alcott was built in 1940. 
Oh. So that's the wars basically start rolling. Yeah. They, they're like, hey, we can't use these little guns on these little tanks, so we need to up them. So they grab some anti-tank guns and put them on there and just put like a little little steel shield around it or just in front of it. Ten of the second series of 70 were assembled by Alcott, while the remainder were assembled by Klockner Humboldt's Deutz in 1940 and 1941. Vehicles in the second series are recognizable by their seven-sided gun shield, while the first series had a five-sided shield. Okay, so it doesn't have a turret. They're basically saying, okay, these guys are going to be standing on this frame of this little bitty tank, and we can't put a turret on it, so we're just going to put five shields and later yeah, seven yeah, shields. Yeah, for protection. Oh, oh, oh no, no. The formal name of the equipment was 4.7 centimeter tank anti-tank gun on turretless PZ. Comp 1. Comp 1, yeah. Yeah. So, Russ, what was the TD's organization? I mean, how did they split these up? Panzerjäger 1s were generally organized into nine vehicle companies with three companies per battalion. Oh, okay. For the French Campaign Anti-Tank Battalion, you had the Panzerjäger Abteilung 521, and it had only six vehicles per company. So, basically, when the French Campaign started, they only had one battalion with these uh tank destroyers and that was in their 521st yeah they only had six per company you know what they were probably used because the french had some big old tanks yeah yeah they did after the balkan campaign one company was assigned to the ss brigade liebstandart der ss adolf hitler and another to the 900th motorized training brigade in preparation for operation barbarossa so they used them in the Balkans, in that conflict. That was actually assigned to a SS brigade. Wow, they were training for Operation Barbarossa. They knew they were going into the yeah. Soviet Union. Sure, oh, they did. Oh man, go ahead and continue. I'm sorry. Twenty-seven other Panzerjäger ones equipped anti-tank battalion six hundred five in North Africa. At the start of the British Operation Crusader, the battalion was at full strength, but lost 13 vehicles during the battles. Uh, that's when they were going up against the Matildas. Mm-hmm. You sure. know what? And, and I, these are, they cannot be frontline tanks with just five sides of no. steel plate the guy's standing on there. Anti-tank battalions 521, 529, 616, 643, and 670 were equipped with a 135 Panzerjäger 1s. For Operation Barbarossa. So they had uh, 135 of uh, these Panzerjägers, uh, ones. Uh, the 521 had the second Panzer group. They had one. Uh, the 529th, uh, which is the 4th uh, Army, they had one. Uh, the 614th of Panzer Army, or Panzer Group, had one. And the 643rd, and the 3rd Panzer Group, ha- had one. So they had these set up going in yeah. against, well, like we said, our KB2. Yeah. And I know the 670, uh, they, had a, they had some, but it was with their first Panzer group. Okay, Russ, go to the stats on this thing. I really want to know what okay, this the, thing was. The Panzerjäger one came to fruition in Nazi Germany. It was in service between 1940 and 1943, and it was used by Nazi Germany. 
in World War II. The designer was Alcott, and it was designed between 1939 and 1940, and it was actually produced between 1940 and 1941, and they built about 202 of them. All right. They weighed about 6.4 tons. They were 4.42 meters long, or 14 foot 6 inches long, 2.06 meters wide, or 6 foot 9 inches, and they were about 2.14 meters high, or 7 foot. But that's with the standing gun shields on. Yeah, with the standing gun shields. Okay. Probably made it a little bit taller than the regular Panzer. Uh, what was like the traverse and elevation and depression on this? I know. Yeah, the elevation had negative 8 degrees all the way up to positive 10 degrees elevation. Nice. And the traverse was about 35 degrees. Yeah, because I, I didn't think they would have a lot of no. traverse with them fixed gun shields. Yeah. Not with a tank destroyer. Uh, it also had a crew of three. Its armor was anywhere between 6 and 14.5 millimeters thick. Okay, I'm pretty sure the 6 was the shield and the oh, 14 sure. was the actual tank. Yeah, the tank itself. Its main armament was the 4.7 centimeter or 1.85 inch pack gun. It had a 3.8 liter or 230 cubic inch six-cylinder water-cooled Maybach NL38TR engine. A good engine. Not bad. Kicked out about 100 horsepower. And its power-to-weight ratio was about 15.6 horsepowers per ton. What kind of transmission? It had a six-speed ZF FG31 transmission with a leaf spring suspension. Had a ground clearance of about 29.5 centimeters, about 1 foot 7 inches. Well, that's not a lot of ground not clearance much, when no. you're in the Russian mud. Yeah, yeah. Or Soviet mud, I apologize. It uh, had a fuel capacity of about 146 liters or 39 U.S. gallons. Mm, that's more than my Kia. Yeah, <laughs> more than your Kia. <laughs> and it had an operational range of about 140 kilometers or 87 miles. So it could go 87 miles on a full tank of gas. Uh, what kind of uh, speed were we talking about? It would go up to about 40 kilometers an hour or comes out to about 25 miles an hour. You know what? Over rough ground yeah. and you're standing on that thing and rocking exactly. back and forth. At 25 miles an hour, you're getting beat yeah. to death. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not a smooth ride. No, no. <laughs> well, I want to know more about the armor. You know, let's talk about the actual armor. Because this whole gun shield thing is kind of making me going, well, what? <laughs> the front of the gun shield, its armor was about 14.5 millimeters. Uh, the side of the gun shield was about 14.5 millimeters also. So that's about half an inch. Yeah. Oh, no. But here's the kicker. The rear and the top and the bottom had None. no armor. <laughs> okay. So how many rounds did it carry? And what about infantry attacks? The total ammunition load was about 86 rounds carried inside the vehicle in five different ammunition boxes. It carried only about 10 HE or high explosive rounds. And those were located behind the loader on the vehicle's right side. On the right side of the crew fighting compartment, where the loader was seated, there was another ammunition box with 34 AP rounds. Some 16 AP additional rounds were placed under the gun, and the remaining rounds were located at the rear fighting compartment under the gunner's and loader seats. They knew it was a tank destroyer, so they're using armor-piercing rounds. They had some HE in case somebody said, hey, there's a machine gun nest up there, or there's a little bunker, so they could fire at that. Yeah. But their main thing was to go out there and pin yeah. or penetrate uh, armor. But again, I'm asking, what about infantry? 
they're going to be charging. What kind of protection did they have? For crew protection against infantry attack, a MP38-40 submachine gun was provided. The ammunition for this weapon was stored on the left and right sides of the armored crew compartment, and the crews could also carry additional personal weapons depending on the combat situation. So they gave them... A submachine gun. A submachine gun. They're like, okay, just stick that out there and start shooting. <laughs> and, and, you know, here's here's some pistols and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. I'm like, uh, okay, but what about, these are open-top vehicles, and they're going into the Soviet Union and the cold and the snow and rain and everything else. Well, how'd they avoid that? Well, to avoid being affected by harsh weather, the crew was actually provided with a folding tarpaulin cover so they had a tarp they had a tarp to cover them up (laughs) well i can say is wow well what about like the equipment and stuff in order to carry additional crew equipment or for used ammunition casings a welded metal or mesh wire basket was added to the rear above the engine compartment and sometimes additional storage boxes were placed on the fenders or to the vehicle's rear so they had no room on this thing, so they had to weld on boxes to the front and yeah. a basket on the back. Basket on the back. You know what? They yeah. used all real estate on the thing, that's uh, for sure. Yeah, they used all the real estate. I'll give them that, but I'm telling you, when it's freezing cold and the oh, wind's blowing wow. and, you know, icy sleet, oh. they're like, here, here's a tarp. <laughs> no thing. Wow. All right, I would skip being a tank destroyer oh, guy. Man. yeah. Well, tell us about it, its uses in combat. The Panzerjäger I proved to be an effective weapon during the French campaign. The Panzerjäger I's strongest point was its 4.7 centimeter gun, which could effectively penetrate the armor of most Allied tanks from over 500 to 600 meters away. When it was used like it should, in cover, shooting at you know enemy armor from like 600 meters away, all right, yeah, I, it was doing okay. its job. While it was primarily designed to attack tanks, it was often used for attacking machine gun nests or similar targets. Machine gun positions could be effectively engaged from ranges of over a kilometer. And in a report from the 18th Infantry Division made after the defeat of France, the effectiveness of this vehicle is clear. The 4.7 centimeter pack gun has proven itself to be very effective against tanks and also against houses when fighting in towns. It had a very real effect as well as a demoralizing effect on the opponent. They're trying to get information on these tank destroyers. They're like, uh, how's this working? And they're like, uh, from a kilometer away, we, we can knock out sniper positions, machine gun nests. The German losses by the end of 1941, in the case of the Panzerjägers, around 140 vehicles were lost. While the Panzerjäger I proved to be effective against the light-armored Soviet tanks, the T-26 or the BT series, the newer, the newer T-34 and KV series proved to be pretty problematic. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, sure. Yeah, they got a little four, <laughs> you know, this 4.7, you know, pack gun. Yeah. And at the front of a T-34, I don't even think it could pin it unless it hit, got a lucky yeah. shot. Yeah. And the KV at the front, no, you're not no going to hit no way. Well, tell us about the surviving vehicles. Yeah, one of the actual surviving vehicles remained at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds up to about 1981 when it was gifted to Germany. And after restoration, it was actually moved to the War Museum in Trier. Now, that's in Ger- Germany. Germany, yeah. That's another tank museum I'd like to go to see. 
Yes. You know, there's so much over there to oh, see. I know. I know. We could spend months. Uh, <sighs> we really could. And um, like I said, there's some the Bovington, uh, the one in France, um, the one, there's a bunch in uh former Soviet Union area, and, of course, this one in Tier. So, pretty interesting. Let's bring up our second point, Russ. So, Russ, I found an article about an American soldier that really has an incredible story, and you read it, and you kind of fell in love with the story. Tell us a little bit about the story. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Joseph R. Barrel, and he's thought to be the only American soldier to have served with both the United States Army and the Soviet Red Army in World War II. He served in the American, and then he served in the Russian. You know what? Uh, Soviet. This ought to be interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Tell, tell me about this. He took part in Mission Albany, which was the airborne landings of the 101st Airborne Division on June 5th through the 6th of 1941 as a member of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. So he's a paratrooper. Paratrooper. With the 101st. That's cool. He was captured by the Germans and sent east as a prisoner of war. After several unsuccessful attempts, Beryl escaped from the German Stalag 3-C prison of war camp in January of 1945, and he joined a Soviet tank battalion under the command of Alexandra Samsinko. Uh, okay, well, I, I need more information. you got to give me more details. Upon his enlistment with the American Army, Beryl volunteered to become a paratrooper and after completing basic airborne infantry training, he was assigned to the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. Oh, we mad respect for the Screaming Eagles. Yes, we do. He actually specialized in radio communications and demolition and was first stationed in Ramsbury, England, to prepare for the upcoming Allied invasion from the West. So he knew how to run the radios, but he was also a demolition guy. Uh, and, and he's a paratrooper. And a paratrooper. Okay. That's, he's got a lot going for him. He's got a lot going for him. After about nine months of training, he completed two missions in occupied France in April and May of 1944. And he delivered gold to the French resistance. So that, so apparently the uppers, his officers are saying, Hey, there's something special about this guy. And they hooked him up with hooking you know, basically getting into France and delivering gold for the resistance. So that's crazy. Uh, okay, so we we've got a little Rambo going uh, on. Exactly. <laughs> on June six, which was D Day, his C forty seven airplane came under enemy fire over the Normandy's coast, and he was forced to jump from the exceedingly low altitude of one hundred twenty meters. After landing in Saint Comdement, Sergeant Barrel lost contact with his fellow paratroopers but he succeeded in blowing up a power station. He performed other sabotage missions before being captured by German soldiers a few days later. So he enlists, uh, goes through his basic, takes his advanced training, learns the radio, learns demolition, and he's already done some secret missions over there. You know, like we're saying, he's you know pretty much a Rambo or better yet. Like Kick-ass soldier is what he was. Yeah, absolutely. And they kick him up to a sergeant. And now he's doing D-Day behind enemy lines, and, and he continues doing his mission, blows up a power station, and blows up some other stuff, does some other, uh, you know, secondary missions before he's captured. Well, that's amazing. you got to tell us more. He's an incredible person. Over the next seven months, 
He was actually held in seven different German prisons. He escaped twice, only to be recaptured each time. After the second escape, in which he and his companions set out for Poland, but they boarded a train to Berlin by mistake. He was turned over to the Gestapo by a German civilian. He was beaten and tortured and then released to the German military after officials stepped in and determined that the Gestapo had no jurisdiction over prisoners of war. He, he escapes. He, he doesn't know where he's going or anything. He just hops a train, and it goes to Berlin. <laughs> How unfortunate is that? Okay, he, he was due for some bad luck. Yeah, he was. But he never gave up. You know, and now he gets caught in the Gestapo, is beating him and torturing him, you know, and you can imagine the horror that that was going through. Now they're gonna, gonna they're gonna shoot him in the head, and the uh, Wehrmacht steps in and says, "No, no, no, he's a prisoner of war. We get him." So he lucks out again. He was taken to the Stalag three C POW camp in Alt Drutz, from which he escaped in early January nineteen forty five. He headed east hoping to meet up with the Soviet army. He encountered a Soviet tank brigade in the middle of January, and he raised both of his hands, holding a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes. So let me get this in my head. He escapes again. I mean, he's been escaping left and right, and he's like, you know what? I'm not going back to Berlin. I'm going east. So he heads east, and he, he doesn't know any Russian except, you know, what they taught the American soldiers, when they meet, uh, I'm sorry, when they meet Soviet forces, the Amerikansky Torvivich, you know, which means like American comrade. And he's holding a pack of Lucky Strikes saying, hey, check it out, man. I'm your friend here. I'm your friend. He runs into this, you know, battalion uh, of, you know, Soviet tanks, and it's got a female commander. You got to tell us about this. Yeah, Burl was eventually able to persuade the battalion's commander who was Alexandra Samosenko, which was allegedly the only female tank officer of that rank in the war, to allow him to fight alongside the unit on its way to Berlin. All right, I want to get this straight. So he goes east, and he runs into this, you know, battalion commander, this Alexandra uh, Samenko, and uh, and she's like the only, you know, female tank officer with that, you know, rank, you know, battalion commander. And he's walking up, doesn't know very much, you know, uh, Russian. And he hands her a pack of lucky strikes and says, hey, you know, I'm here to help. He convinces her that he's an American and he wants to help fight. You know, <laughs> instead of saying, hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a prisoner and I've been beaten and yeah. I, I, I need protection. He doesn't do that. No. He's like, I, I want to fight. He's ready to keep fighting, man. No, I got some payback. Like you said, this guy's a real-life Rambo. Wow. After Beryl convinced her, um, it began his month-long stint in a Soviet tank battalion, where his demolitions expertise was very much appreciated. She goes to him like, listen, I, I really can't drive a tank, but I can blow up bunkers. He can blow stuff up. And they're like, hey, you go ahead there, yeah. Rambo. Heck yeah. And he goes all the way back to Berlin. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so tell, tell us about his new battalion. Uh, Beryl's new battalion was the one that freed his former camp, Stalag 3-C, at the end of January. But in the first week of February, he was wounded during an attack by German dive bombers. 
All right, now I got to cut in again. So he, he convinces this female commander. He goes, hey, you know, let me hook up. Let me do some demolitions. He's fighting along the way, fighting. And he goes back to his camp and liberates it. And he walks into all the guys that he knew there. And he goes, hey, I told you I'd come back with help. What a guy. I know. So he keeps fighting. And he gets wounded by a German dive bomber attack that was attacking the, you know, Soviet tanks. And uh, then he gets evacuated. Tell me about that. He was evacuated to a Soviet hospital in Landsberg on der Warth, which was in Poland, where he received a visit from Soviet Marshal Georgi Zukov. Now, I've done some studying on Zukov. He, he was a very good leader. You know, he was uh, under a lot of pressure from... Uh, you know, comrade Stalin. And so he, you know, going to visit the wounded and everything. And they're like, you might want to see this American dude. And he's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, he escaped prison or war camp. And then he joined up with Alexandra and her tank battalion and went in and rescued this. And then he got hurt, you know, fighting with us, you know, against German dive bombers. And you got to tell us what Zukov's did. Zukov who was intrigued by the only non-Soviet in the hospital, learned his story through an interpreter, and provided Beryl with official papers in order to rejoin the American forces. Joining a Soviet military convoy, Beryl arrived at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in February 1945, only to learn that he had been reported by the U.S. War Department as killed in action on June 10th of 1944 on French soil. A funeral mass had been held in his honor in Muskegon, and his obituary was published in the local newspaper. So they can't find him. He's not reported as a prisoner of war. Basically, you know, like they said, he got dropped off, lost, con- you know, his people that he's his other soldiers. He goes on, blows up the power station, does this other stuff, gets captured, and they take him. They write him off as being dead. And they write him off and is dead. His poor family is like, oh, you know, we lost him, and they did a mass. You know, reporting to, you know, a newspaper, and they do an obituary. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Totally incredible. I mean, this guy, talk about a story. Yeah. I mean, this guy's got a life story. His unique service earned him medals from U.S. President Bill Clinton and President Boris Yeltsin of Russia at a ceremony in the Rose Garden of the White House marking the 50th anniversary of D-Day in 1994. Beryl died in his sleep of heart failure on December 12, 2004, during a visit to Tokoa, Georgia, where he had trained with paratroopers in 1942. He was 81 years old. He was buried with honors in Section 1 of Arlington National Cemetery in April of 2005. He lives until he's 81, and they take him to see his old paratrooper camp, and he's at the hotel, and he just passes away yeah. He's after he visited that. Total incredible. Wow. Just incredible. You know what? The next time we're in Washington, D.C., we're yeah. going to go pay respects to this yes, guy. Yes, I agree. Uh, how they haven't made a movie about this guy. That's exactly. That's what I was thinking. This is like what movies are made about. It, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, talk about a hero. Exactly. And how exciting is that? We had to he bring had somebody this up. else on his side. That's all I can say. Uh, to survive but, all that, that he survived. Yep. Incredible. Let's go ahead and uh, do our uh, closing. Talk about our Patreon people. Yeah. We want to shout out to our patrons on Patreon. If you have not checked out our Patreon page, make sure you get out there. We've 
got all the links at www.twotankersandcat.com. That's our uh, website. We have links to all the ways that you can help support us. We want to shout out to Andy Crow, who has just recently went up a step. Yeah, he, supporting us even more now. He gave us an increase. He did. What a, what Thank a great you, Andy. guy. Man, you're a great guy. Also want to shout out to Born Ben, who's been with us for quite some time, supporting us now. And my girlfriend, Christy McCarty, uh, Kevin Shin, Kyler Montgomery, uh, Mark Drake. Who was the other guy? ODS Thero. Yeah, solid dude there. And, of course, Rick Schmidt. We Rick love, Schmidt, buddy. We love Rick. Thank you, Rick. You rock, man. Well, uh, it's been a great story. Story, uh, the Panzer Jaeger and uh, Joseph Burl or Barrel or however we're killing that. Somebody's going to say you you really have to improve your names. <laughs> but uh, um, maybe I'll take some online German lessons or something. Like I think that. we're going to have to if we keep German talking about and Russian and or I'm sorry, Soviet. Yeah, but yeah, but Craig Moore brings it up. I know. You don't I'm, say I've, Russian, say Soviet I, I, during I, that I time. Catch myself quite often. Well, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you have a great holiday and a, uh, you know. Yes. Just Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's. And just everything. Happy holidays. Yep. Everything in between, guys. Thanks for all your support. Yep. This is awesome. It is. And thank you so much. Uh, Anyway, uh, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. And as always, happy tanking and have a great week. (laughs)